Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. My name is Mike Anderson, and to kick things off, we're going to highlight our Shields Outdoors customer of the week. This week's winner is Peyton Jonk of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Peyton is a bit of a regular on our Trophy Tuesday stories, who is an avid outdoorsman and a pretty fantastic photographer. You can see an example of his work in the Instagram post we put out this past Wednesday, February 10th, on a couple of massive flocks of snow geese. If you want to go down a rabbit hole of awesome images, make sure to check out his Instagram page that's tagged in that post. Congratulations, Peyton, on being chosen as our Shields Outdoors Customer of the Week, and thank you for priming us on the topic of this podcast segment. Today, we are going to be talking about snow goose hunting, and joining us is Corey Loeffler. In mid-January, Sitka unveiled the new Nodak series of non-disposable whites, and Corey has been a huge part of that campaign, from the research and development portion of the system to the marketing campaign. If you go to the Sitka website and click on the Nodak system, the description is, the all-new Nodak system was made for Corey Loeffler's way of life, a non-disposable outlook on gear and game. So let's find out who this Corey Loeffler guy is. Corey, can you introduce yourself? Uh, hey, yeah, Bob. Thanks for, uh, thanks for that. Uh, my name is Corey Loeffler. I was born and raised in Thief River Falls, Minnesota. And I have been a full-time call maker. I make duck and goose and sandhill crane calls uh, since roughly 2007 and have sold them in uh, all parts of the United States and Canada and a few other places in the world as well. So that's my full-time job, and I wear quite a few different hats as well. Uh, I do I take a lot of photos, do a lot of photography stuff. I do a lot of dog training in the summertime when there's no hunting seasons to be had. I keep the dogs in shape and I run a bunch of hunt tests, um, typically around the Midwest and then some down in Texas as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, as far as my work and what I like to do in my spare time in my off time, well, there's not a whole lot of off time, basically. Um, I kind of live the, the outdoor lifestyle, and I, I live to hunt, and uh, hunt to live, I guess, basically. So um, we, uh, we we grow a giant garden as a family, so we're working on that all summer, and uh, we really kind of live – we're stewards of the land and live off the land or, or live with the land. And it's kind of a family tradition that was passed down to me from my – you know, dates way back, I guess. But uh, my grandpa, uh, he had – he's just recently passed away, but uh, he played a very influential part in, um, you know, just my – just me, who I am. Uh, he was born in the Depression – uh, right before the uh, right before the Great Depression, and you know they had to provide all of their food that they put on their table. And um, his mom actually had passed away uh, right as he was getting done with college. So he was getting done with college, and he was about 16 years old, and went to college 
um, not not really around home. He he, uh, he oh I don't know I suppose Crookston, Minnesota. He went to college there, and that was probably 30 minutes from home or something like that, which is a, a, quite a distance back then. And um, yeah, he got done with college. His mom ended up passing away, just kind of basically from like a very simple, just a very simple health problem that's easily curable with some antibiotics in today's medical uh, medical times. But um, so, yeah, that kind of left him uh, and his his family. It was him, his dad and his two younger brothers. And basically his dad, which my great grandpa, Oscar, he kind of fell into a really deep depression and was was almost um, kind of worthless, I guess, for a little while, just because uh, depression hit him so hard with the passing of his wife. So my grandpa, 16 years old, had to provide food during the heart of the depression for his two younger brothers and his dad. Um, it just, uh, it's, it's a really cool story and it's just really cool to just feel really fortunate to, to be, uh, you know, be able to call myself his grandson and to have that as a teacher, um, have him teaching me at the, the ways of, of kind of life and the outdoors and hunting and gardening and all that stuff. It, it really made a, a very strong impact on me in my life and it's carried through till now. So yeah, it's definitely a lot easier to go buy your meat and groceries at the grocery store, but that's not how we do it. We kind of live off the land and with the land and it's just a, a big part of who, who I am. And then my family as well. I've got three daughters and a wife. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, long version of the background of Corey Loeffler, I guess. No, that's a great story. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure that, I'm sure that family definitely keeps you busy and, uh, it's cool to just hear about the, about the background and instilling those values of, of hard work and appreciation for, uh, for everything you, for everything you earn. So how did you, uh, how did you first develop a passion for, or even an obsession for bird hunting? Well, uh, gosh, I guess it started early on, uh, kind of from jealousy, if that makes any sense. <laughs> I had a couple neighbor friends of mine. I grew up in the city, or not city, but in Thief River Falls, and I rode a bike around town all the time, so I was more of a town kid. But I had a couple neighbor kids that were a few years older than me, and their dad was really into hunting and would take those guys on hunting trips, and that's all I would hear about is hunting, 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 and that kind of really sparked a, a curiosity I guess early on and I really wanted to find out what it was all about and it, they made it sound so cool and uh, so you know naturally I started out at 12 years old getting a, my hunter safety certificate and then into grouse hunting rough grouse hunting because that's one of the first seasons available in September and then I went right into uh, my uncle Peter had taken me on my first duck hunt uh, that that year, I think I was 12 when we did that. And probably we didn't shoot anything, but it was still really cool just getting out there and being old enough to carry a gun and carry a shotgun. I had a little 20 gauge that I still have in the gun safe now, but was able to carry that and you know be a part of it. I thought it was really neat. And then uh, the year after was goose hunting, and along with goose hunting comes goose calling and communicating with honkers. They're so much more vocal and more susceptible to calling than ducks are. So I, I naturally, you know, I pretty much don't shut up, and I'm making noise all the time <laughs> with everything. So um, I gravitated towards goose hunting. And then back then, actually, we we 
only hunted to eat you know you, like that's how i was brought up and and all every, everyone in my family you eat what you kill and you don't go hunting for it if you don't plan to eat it and that's why you go hunting is because you're looking to put food on the table it was it was recreational for sure uh and then there's trophy hunting and stuff that goes on with with looking to shoot a big whitetail or something like that um but that that isn't the the sole purpose of why myself or or anyone that's taught me how to how to, how to hunt it's not a part of why you go out into the woods uh, and not to fulfill some personal thing or whatever it's to put meat on the table basically and uh so early on we would cook ducks the ducks that we shot we'd cook them next to the honkers that we shot and honestly, the honkers would always t- turn out way better. We typically would use a crock pot with some uh, cream of mushroom soup and uh, put it over rice or something like that. And the honker meat probably just didn't quite get as done because it's a bigger, thicker breast. And then the, the duck breasts were little tiny things, and they would get way beyond done. And we didn't like duck at all. And we so we just quit shooting them, and we just focused on shooting honkers. So I suppose all through between, you know, me being about 13 years of age up to, gosh, almost 20, 21, 22, something like that. So the better part of 10 years of my life, I didn't care to even shoot a duck at all. And then, oh, I suppose uh, four Oh, it's been probably four or five years or something like that. A, f- a chef friend of mine said, what do you do with all the ducks you shoot? It's like, ah, I don't really shoot that many. I just, you know, I'm a goose guy. And he said, oh, you got to be shooting ducks and you got to pluck them and you got to pull the breast feathers off of there. And if you're just going to breast them out, you have to pluck the breast first and do it that way. I was like, well, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So I tried it and a whole new love for duck hunting ensued after I ate that first duck that was, you know, plucked and then cooked it with the skin and the fat on intact. Um, well, just a whole new appreciation for ducks there. So now big duck guy, big and snow goose guy. That's uh, the same, same type of deal, but, um, snow oh boy. Geese. so is it just yeah. because, um, when you pluck it, it like retains the moisture or what's going on there? Yeah. So when you pluck the, if you want to pluck the whole bird, that's fine. Otherwise, just plucking the breast feathers off of off of that skin that's just on top of the breast meat, and then going about breasting the bird out how no, typically uh, anyone would would breast a duck or or a goose. Um, but the main purpose is to keep the skin and fat intact with that breast meat, and then use this. Uh, use that skin and fat to your advantage while you're cooking it. It's kind of like um, it, there's flavor there, and then it's a little bit of a heat barrier and it kind of protects it against the heat. So you would cook that breast skin side down on the pan. I like to use a metal pan. Uh, I guess they're all metal, but I mean a stainless pan or a cast iron pan to cook that. I don't typically use a non-stick pan when I'm cooking ducks in, in this fashion. Um, otherwise, right on the pellet grill or a charcoal grill, really high heat, um, that's going to kind of render out the fat as it cooks. And I like to cook them in a pan so that once the fat renders off of the breast meat, I can then use that fat to say like saute some vegetables for uh, fajitas. I'll throw some onions and green peppers in there. I'll pull the duck meat off of the pan, 
when that's done or when it's rare, I'll have all that fat and oil in the pan, and then I'll add the vegetables, saute those up, and while I'm, those are sauteing, I'll be slicing the duck breast, roll those back in with the vegetables. It's all seasoned up. Boom, there you have it, some fajitas, or that's very similar to like what a Philly cheesesteak would be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I kind of focus more, not some, so much on the recipes of things, but more so on just the uh, technique and then kind of do with it whatever seasonings I have available or whatever I'm feeling. If it's, like I said, if it's fajitas and I got a bunch of taco stuff and salsa, or if it's Philly cheesesteak and I got a, a hoagie bun sitting there or something like that so Mm -hmm. so what is your all-time favorite thing to make though gosh all-time favorite i mean i i do a lot of things for a venison backstrap you know (laughs) that uh mature dough uh let her hang for at least a minimum of seven days if not 14 in the right conditions cook that thing to rare eat it with a little bit of soy sauce lightly seasoned with salt and pepper whether it's pan fried or done on a pellet grill, oh man, I don't know. That's so tough to beat. I just, I love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a hard time arguing with you on that one. Nothing, <laughs> nothing beats a little venison backstrap. So, it's um, you, you're giving off a real, you know, true outdoorsman, live off the land vibe. Is that is that why things kind of worked so well with your uh, with your venture with Sitka? Can you talk about how, you know, how basically that started and how you got into uh, promoting the NODAC system? Uh, yeah, so my, my story with Sitka probably started in roughly 2014. I just came on as an ambassador to try and help out with some product design. I hunt a lot. I mean, I oh, I don't know how many days. It's, it's well over a couple hundred days if you're considering dog training and hunt tests during the summertime and then all the days spent a field in the fall so uh, i was a pretty good candidate for beating the heck out of gear and using it out in the field and, and providing feedback that way uh, so that was kind of my role early on and just kind of helping out with whatever they needed help with prototyping some gear and uh, you know for the most part just field testing and beating the heck out of stuff and uh trying to use it normally and wreck it uh so then as time went on i just got into contact a little bit more and more with some of the guys at the main office in bozeman there and um they kind of got wind of of my story and how much we're cooking wild game and all the stuff that i like to do on instagram and my instagram stories with game utilization and just using all parts of everything that i'm harvesting or killing and then uh, our garden as well my mom is a huge huge, huge part of the the garden. So we've got just an absolutely giant garden in the backyard that is drip tape irrigated. If you know what that is, uh, we water it with, with lines of drip tape out there and there's over 1500 feet of drip tape in the garden. And then that drip tape would feed two rows of plants. So, you know, well over a half mile of plants in the, in the backyard. Um, and there's everything under the sun back there. So the guys at Sitka in the main office in Bozeman, had kind of got word about that and they related those Nodak Gore-Tex whites, the Nodak series to uh, well, that's Sitka's version of non-disposable whites. So you're not going to throw those Gore-Tex whites away. They're 
repairable and they're built to last. Um, they related that to my view on wild game and what I'm doing with, you say, snow geese when I kill them. Um, it's so so common to for people, you know, maybe on the internet and in chat rooms to kind of degrade or talk down on the snow goose more so just because they're overpopulated and typically guys go out and try and shoot so many of them and then you're kind of inundated with all this meat and all these birds that just take so much time to deal with and process that you don't want to sit and take the time to really do it right because if you went out and shot a hundred of them or whatever it just overwhelming so uh you know i'm i'm really not about that type of lifestyle, I don't need to go out and I don't have goals to go out and shoot a hundred every time I go out and hunt. I want to shoot enough to so that I can clean them properly and then utilize them. You know, however much time I have on my hands to to properly take care of those birds and how much freezer space I have, that's that's kind of my limit. You know, there is really no limit on snow geese in the springtime, but yeah, I set a limit for myself and on what I want to do and how much time I have to, to take care of all that meat. So, um, so yeah, I don't view snow geese as being disposable or wild game at, at all. And then Sitka doesn't view their Nodak series whites as being disposable. So it's kind of like a non-disposable way of life and really a sustainable and, and uh, being a, a steward of the land basically is kind of the, the common tie there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's just, it's not really an outlook that is, is super present nowadays. You know, people, you know, a lot of people that want to show off their stuff on Instagram, Facebook, social media, whatever it's, you know, look at how many I shot, look at how big my deer is. It's not, look at how well I'm utilizing the land. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's awful cool. So, um, can you give us your, uh, your initial impressions on the Nodak series, your thoughts, critiques? Uh, yeah, I, gosh, I've had a pair or pairs for over a year and a half. Maybe it's even been close to two years now, something like that. So, uh, I think that's something really cool that Sitka does and the way that they set out to R and D a new product is that it's not dreamt up on Friday and it, it hits the market, uh, by next week, you know? So, uh, I've had those, I had those early run Gore-Tex whites for, yeah, like I said, probably a couple years now, and they were way, way different than what actually came out on the, the production side of things. So, um, but it was the stuff that I had was basically to test a UV pattern and a UV reflection in that, particular garment but um uh, after that after getting my hands on the production ones here just oh what's it been now uh less than a month um man putting those things on they were designed completely around longevity of the product and keeping mud out of zippers keeping zippers out of areas on the garment where you don't need zippers. So down from, let's say your knee down to the ground or down to your boot, that's all, it all snaps together right there. So there is no zipper right there because that's the most common place for mud to get into zipper and mud wrecks zippers. So they basically tried to battle against the mud as much as they could. And, um, you know, just, uh, 
just all durability and longevity in the garment. Uh, other than that, there's a storm flap that has Velcro closures that goes over all the zippered seams. Um, and then the bib zips all the way right up to basically in line with, say, like your armpits. So, you know, there's there's a zipper on each leg. If you need to relieve yourself out in the field, you can utilize those two zippers and drop the front of the bib down. They're easy to get in and out of without getting mud all over the place. There's, If there's one thing that goes with snow goose hunting in the spring, it's mud. I mean, it's all all revolves around mud mm-hmm. it's never exactly. never hardly ever dry um so then uh, there's that and then the jacket is kind of the same way it's got a big storm flap over the zipper that zips up the main part of the jacket there's uh there's a hood on it because it's a gore-tex uh, jacket all gore-tex jackets have hoods on them and uh the hood itself is cut back a little bit on the sides of the hood so it's just going to aid in your peripheral vision seeing left and seeing right out of that hood to you know try and catch uh, incoming flocks so you don't have a, a hood blocking your vision and giving you tunnel vision while you're laying there in the blind um, so other than that no there's an articulated fit so you can layer whatever you need to layer underneath that garment i've got an unboxing video on my youtube channel where i talk about how many different layers i put underneath those things and um man i had the i had the gradient pants on if you guys are familiar with those or kind of the sweatpants i had those on and then i had put my hudson bibs on over those and then i'd put the whites on over the top of the hudson bibs and i don't even know what temperature you'd be good to uh down to you know i mean minus 30 or something like that with all those clothes on you'd be just fine mm-hmm. and uh it wasn't super comfortable it got a little bit tight when i had all those layers on but that's if you guys are familiar with those there that's that's getting really really thick um but then the uh, duck oven jacket layers perfectly underneath there the fahrenheit jacket the gradient jacket all that stuff is going to provide awesome insulation because the nodex system is just a gore-tex shell there's no insulation in it it's there's no thrills and frills it's very basic built for to keep the mud off of you and and uh built for longevity and and built to reflect the exact same uv color of light that snow geese reflect so there's a lot of work done in a lab um, with gore in building a garment that's going to reflect that and look the same to snow geese as other snow geese on the ground so camouflage is uh is a big is a big part of it. it might just look like a white jacket but there's actually a lot going on there too so mm-hmm. so why would you why would you wear white versus camo when you're when you're in the goose field yeah so what a lot of guys do out there is and it, it doesn't really matter if you're hunting snow geese or uh, it's a very common practice hunting little geese as well and, and some honkers little geese i'm talking small canada geese but um it's very effective to put out a white spread, so snow goose spread, and then have a pretty dense part of the decoys wherever you're going to lay, and then basically lay underneath the decoys in whites to try and blend into the decoys, not blend into the ground that you're laying on top of if it happens to be a cornfield or a wheat field or something. Um, yeah, you're not going to blend into a cornfield, a dry cornfield, if it's if you're wearing a white jacket, but if you cover yourself up 
with a bunch of snow goose decoys and tapia, then yeah, you're going to blend in pretty good that way. So it's, uh, it's kind of a more, a little bit more of an advanced hunting style practice that, uh, pretty common, uh, nowadays, a lot of guys are, are utilizing that and then works really good for ducks in the fall, um, and, and little geese, all over the place, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, those guys use that same style of practice to, to hunt those little, little Canada geese all the time. So very effective at hiding from the birds, hiding in plain sight, if you will. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's, that Nodak system just seems like a, a sophisticated simple, you know, having, having just a, a great, well thought out, outer outer layer that can be that can be pieced with another system and you know not not too many pockets you know just you're going to get mud everywhere so if you have if you have a super technical pant with a whole bunch of pockets and zippers and stuff like that it's just gonna just gonna become a mess so something that seems like it's simple is actually has years and years of uh product development to it yeah that's that's uh, there's a lot of truth to that for sure. There are no pockets in the bibs themselves. They just have the two zippers, and and that's it. So and the bibs are obviously going to be rolled through the mud first, and then the jacket does have two hand pockets on the side. Kind of pretty common to where you'd see normal pockets on most any other coat. So, but that's about it. There's just those two pockets on the bibs and a hood, and um, pretty simple, like you said. Okay. So how about we talk a little bit about, uh, about snow geese hunting and strategy? Um, when did you first start getting into snow goose hunting? Oh, I probably was on my first couple snow goose hunts. I bet with, um, the guys that now currently own Eaglehead outdoors, Eaglehead, uh, they're hunting snow geese. I bet down in, in Arkansas right now. Um, but yeah, Nick Pashusta and Matt Manuel, uh, Corey Luce was in there. You know, some of those guys from the Minnesota, North Dakota area. I hunted with those guys back when the conservation season kind of first got rolling or a few years after that. And we traveled all over North Dakota and South Dakota um, and tried uh, tried our best with uh, the budgets that we had, I guess, back in the day. So we were trying to scrape by with uh, – as little of money as we could because we didn't have any, but um, trying to trying to hunt snow goose snow geese on a on a college kid's budget is fairly tough when you're you know talking the thousand or two thousand decoy spreads. So um, so yeah, the times were a lot different back then than they are now. But uh, that's kind of when I got started with it, and you know I've chased them in Arkansas. A little bit and south dakota north dakota a lot and then probably my favorite place to hunt them would be around uh, prince albert saskatchewan and that's that's a pretty decent drive from from here but um when the birds get up there they get into a totally different mental state and it's almost like the pre-rut for whitetails is what the snow geese get into and really what they're trying to do is they're just trying to pack on the food 
and the fat as much as possible when they get up there because those are the last grain fields that they're going to come across on their northward migration in the spring and they're trying to get as much fat as possible because they know that they're flying over the boreal forest up into the tundra and they're going to establish a nest up in the tundra um and they're reserve nesters so they're going to nest with basically the fat reserves that they have on their body and there won't be anything to eat whatsoever for you know they'll probably be up there for a month and a half or almost two months before there's really anything to eat whatsoever and they have to raise uh, they have to produce those eggs and and raise that that uh, clutch of of little ones on whatever fat reserves that they have on their body from um eating in you know that central part of Saskatchewan so um i think the birds taste a lot better and that's what i'm that's what i'm after and then i harvest um i harvest all of the fat off of the snow goose as well because they are like almost obese when they get to that area so i'll harvest all the fat off the snow geese and render it down and then bring home just a big jug of fat with me basically and i use that to cook pretty much everything like that venison backstrap that we were talking about you know i use that to cook all year um i just use it in place of vegetable oil olive oil butter you know whatever use it the same as that and uh it's got a really crazy high flash point so if you want to talk about frying up some of the best crappie or or walleye you've ever had i would su- highly suggest duck or snow goose fat should uh pan fried and some of that stuff because you can get it so hot and flash fry it so fast so you know the fish would be uh excellent juicy moist fish flaky fish on the inside and then a really hard crispy crust on the outside and it just makes for awesome food and kind of a cool story to go back and think about how you acquired all a big old bucket of fat way up in saskatchewan uh, (laughs) pulling it out of dead snow goose carcasses you know so yeah that's a that's pretty crazy you know i Unfortunately, we probably won't be able to go to Saskatchewan this year and do that. But um, have you ever had any instances where you've got like jugs and jugs of this and you run into any trouble at the border? Like, what are you trying to smuggle across the border here in all these gallon jugs? Uh, I haven't yet. I put it in Folger's coffee can and just cross my fingers i don't i don't think there's any laws against no, it no i mean there, there, sure there's absolutely nothing little, wrong with that but i just yeah, find it, it interesting goofy. like i wonder how many how many border people see just gallons of that stuff like. <laughs> uh, i i think i'm fairly unique when it comes to those types of practices but uh, there are a few people that do it and i know i got some pretty wild looks and, and comments the first time i was you know digging through the bird pile the guys friends of mine and guides they were pulling the breasts out of out of the birds and then i was going back through and all the birds that they had breasted and i was i was pulling the the fat out of the inside but when a bird is in that 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 state um in in their migration or or in their their breeding process basically they store two really really big pockets of fat down in their kind of their pelvic cavity Mm-hmm. on either side of their large intestine right before it exits the body. So right down there, as long as the bird is, it doesn't have any BBs running through that stuff. And, you know, it's going to split some stuff up down there and some juices are going to go everywhere. You know, as long as that stuff doesn't happen and say the bird was just shot in the wing or the, the head or the breast up in the front part of the bird, um, all of the GI tract should be 
should be perfect. And then that's kind of the fat that I seek out. And uh, you can pull like, oh my gosh, it's almost two tennis ball size clumps of fat out of each goose. They're there's so much you can't even believe that they can fly and get off the ground they're they're so heavy so uh, you can get a lot of fat off of one bird and it's just perfect there's just a little bit of connective tissue in there and a couple little blood vessels and i put a little bit of water in a big soup pan uh, soup pot and then i put all that fat in there and i just turn it on a really really low heat and it just it kind of liquefies or renders out all that fat and then i run it through a strainer um and then i separate the water off of there that's really easy fat and water no big deal and then you're just left with a big almost pure white or just off white block of of fat after it hardens up and um yeah it's kind of cool making me making my mouth water because i wasn't able to get up there last spring either so i ran on a snow goose fat a long time ago and kind of bummed out right now oh do you have any plans to chase them again this spring where you where you gonna be starting uh, yeah, for sure. I will be, uh, I've got a couple other projects to do before the, the geese get up north. But uh, yeah, I mean, South Dakota and North Dakota, I'll be running around there quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the border. I don't foresee it opening anytime soon, but should be running around South Dakota and North Dakota plenty and trying to stock up, mm-hmm. trying to build up those fat reserves for the year. There you go. So you you've been kind of on a little journey and uh, and sharing it on your on your Instagram stories, sending out all these uh, disposable whites. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, we went on a delivery tour for Sitka. We loaded up with a whole bunch of the Nodak system whites and then delivered them to some outfitters and guides along the way. We started up here in in Minnesota and I picked up my buddy Brett Amundsen down in, met him in Brookings, South Dakota, and we just hit the road. Our first stop was the Kansas Hurt Locker and we dropped off a couple sets down there to a couple good buddies, Cooper Sutherland and uh, Christian Locke, who owns Kansas Hurt Locker. Uh, Dropped them off to those guys, hunted with them for a day and, and just hung out got their take on you know their first impression of them and then we went over to bobby guy films just uh, a couple hours down the road and you know same thing delivered those guys a couple sets of whites and got their first impression on them went on a hunt we laid in the whites there that was our first time hunting with the actual production whites um all of the imagery that is out there on the sitka gear website and some stuff that i've posted that was uh those were those were uh, not really – they're basically production run, but they were um, special shipment of whites just for that photo shoot. But, yeah, these were actually uh, regular production run whites, and that was our first hunt with, with Bobby Guy Films. Um, we laid in the snow goose decoys, and then we shot little little Canada geese, um, very typical for the guys down in, in Kansas this time of year to – be focusing their targets on those little geese and then shot a couple snow geese that day as well and we ventured down after after that to the uh, falco outfitters in oklahoma and stayed there for a few days and hunted in the whites a couple times with those guys um, and then went on a duck hunt as well got to check out falco Um, all of the 
journeys and all of the stops are either on my Instagram or they're on Brett Amundsen's Sporting Journal Radio Instagram um, and uh, his YouTube channel as well. So some pretty cool videos there documented all of our stops along the way. And then the final stop on the Whites Tour was down to Cadillac Creek Outfitters in Amarillo, Texas with Toby Brolin. And we hunted some little geese with Toby. Then we went hog hunting for a few days. Then we went back up to Kansas and hung out at the Hurt Locker for a couple more days. And then we came home. So, yeah, it was like a two-week road trip. Just go, 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 show up at a spot. Usually show up at about 11 at night, go to bed, wake up about 4, go hunting, do our hunting stuff, do our media stuff, hit the road, show up at the next spot. So there wasn't a whole lot of sleep on that tour but uh it was a lot of friends made and we had a ton of fun so yeah that's very cool i could i could think of a few worse things to do than just do a do a trip like that (laughs) yeah so um where are the where are the snow geese staged right now like when you were in oklahoma or were there a lot down there um tip the the snow goose migration is really wild and and pretty crazy um so we've got birds that run through the central part of the continental United States. And there'll be a bunch of snow geese, and they're kind of split up into snows and blues. So the flocks will be very mixed with snow geese and blue geese, and basically they're the same species and they act exactly the same. And then if you get over onto Pacific Coast and Flyway and, and as well as the Atlantic coast, those guys over there have flocks of snow geese where blue geese are extremely rare and you might not see one at all. It's just pure white flocks. But all these birds kind of do mix up, um, whether it be up on their breeding grounds, up in the tundra, uh, otherwise down at different places that they winter. Uh, The Pacific birds are going to probably winter more so in in California and stay over there, but a bunch of them will trickle down into Texas and, you know, the panhandle and maybe down even into Mexico and stuff like that. But uh, our, our birds that we are typically chasing in the Midwest right now, they're most of them are in Arkansas somewhere. Uh, a few of them are, are probably going to be up in into Missouri. Um, but Arkansas and Louisiana is where the majority of those birds are hanging out. So I don't know how many that really is. There's It's pretty tough to get an estimate on the, the size of that flock, and that's the, the most rapidly increasing flock. But um, it could be anywhere from 11 to... 20 million birds i haven't i honestly haven't heard a number lately and what they think that estimate is but mm-hmm. it's a, bunch a of lot them, so <laughs> that's yeah, for sure absolutely so um best guess when do you think they would start migrating up i mean obviously it's going to depend on the weather but um any general time frame they yeah basically like you said it depends on the weather and it depends on the snow conditions um for the most part, what they're trying to do is the snow goose migration is a bit of a race and they're going to try and push that snow line and they're kind of going to race to those, the furthest north grain fields that 
they can find food at basically. And that's going to be kind of around that Prince Albert, Saskatchewan area. And it's a little bit of a race to get there uh, because that's where they go to build their fat reserves. They don't want to start building their fat reserves in the, the corn belt, you know, in Nebraska and, and Iowa. Uh, yeah, it would be easy to, to do that, to put on fat down in Nebraska and stop in and uh, feed five times as long in all those cornfields. But you're still going to have to fly. I don't even know how many miles that is from Nebraska all the way up to the, let's say, north of the Brooks Range up in Alaska, um, up in the tundra, like 2,000 miles. You don't want to be flying 2,000 miles if you have a body weight index of, you know, whatever that would be 70% or something like that. Yeah, but I uh, suppose it's basically just like getting in shape for a marathon. You don't want to just get yeah. super fat and then have all that long way to go. Right. Right. So they want to try and run the marathon basically, if you will, uh, which would be flying as far North as they can as, as in best shape that they can. And then once they get there, pack on the weight, and then just fly over the forest. And um, so they know they're going to have to get really, really fat. They just don't want to do it too early. So uh, so it's kind of a race to, to get as far north as they can and, and hang out on those eating grounds for as long as they can until um, the calendar ticks and uh, moon phase is right or whatever it is, whatever tells them they got to take off. And usually they take off from that area about May 20th. So... May 20th is r- roughly when you're going to see the last few snow geese up there, and then they'll decide to fly the forest and, and take off north. Um, so, you know, when we'll see them around here, we don't have a whole lot of snow on the ground this year, but I would say Brookings, South Dakota is going to have snow geese, man, right around March 13th every year they've got snow geese, and there's a whole bunch of them in that area, so... I'd say give it a month and and uh, South Dakota is going to start to see them trickle in. Nice. So um, what's your strategy when hunting snow geese? Like uh, how many decoys do you use? Are there times where you don't use decoys? It would depend on the part of the migration that we're hunting. And the early part of the migration, say the when you're hunting migrators, birds that are just traveling new to the area sometimes you can get away with a big spread let's say up on top of a hill somewhere on a hillside very visible from a long ways away Um, you can get away with leaving those decoys out for numerous days maybe a week or two or three weeks at a time depending on weather and then if you're running a migrator rig like that you're probably going to want to use a lot of decoys like more than a thousand up into two or three thousand decoys Uh, later on in the migration as bird numbers start to drop a little bit and you start to see a higher concentration of juvenile snow geese around then those juvies are going to act a lot more like early season canada geese and that's kind of what i um compare them to basically but uh those juvies are going to probably be feeding twice a day, depending on weather, and they're not going to be feeding too far from where they're roosting. Sometimes it's way too close, and you have to wait for the right weather to hunt, up, hunt them. But um, those juvies, 
if you can find the juvie pockets, they're typically they don't have that urge or the urgency to get north as fast, so they lag behind and they're typically sexually immature one and two year old birds that are not going to nest and and put eggs on the ground. They're just going to go up north and hang out, stop wherever they feel like is far enough north, wherever they're not going to get harassed by predators, and then they're going to molt there. Um, a lot of times it is up onto the tundra or, or different colonies that, that they'll form. But um, hunting those juvies a little bit later in the year, say, you know, April 15th or something like that, mid-April, um, can be very rewarding, but it can be very taxing as well on the amount of miles you have to put on to try and find those little pockets of birds because there won't be hardly anything around and uh, hunting, you know, a thousand or two thousand bird pocket of juvies is can be really good. Where normally when the migration's rolling through and you're out scouting, you wouldn't even blink at seeing a thousand birds on the ground when you can drive, you know, you probably might drive five, ten more miles and there'll be 50,000 of them or, you know, 100,000 of them in an area or more. So uh, um, things really change really fast with that snow goose migration as the adults push through and leave some of the juvie pockets behind. Uh, things change a lot, and a lot of guys will sit there with binoculars on the side of the road just looking at flocks, seeing how many adults are out there, how many juvies are out there, taking consideration the percentage and then maybe basing um, a hunt on that you know do we have enough juvies to hunt them and a lot of times the juvies will come back around a couple different times after you've shot at them once so they they play the game a lot better than than the adults do so that's why a lot of people mm. concentrate on those so yeah makes sense um do you see like a high degree of of education as a bird goes from Arkansas to, you know, South Dakota to the Canada border to Saskatchewan? Do they learn super fast? Um, you know, in all honesty, I don't think they're, they're learning. They probably learn a little bit as they go uh, along the way, but I don't think they're really learning from Arkansas to South Dakota on the way up. That bird is typically their average age is up over 10 years old and they are hunted over nine months out of the year. So they're hunted probably the most out of, you know, out of any birds, any game birds that we have in North America, they're hunted the most frequently. And uh, so there's pressure on them all the time. You know, the only time there's not hunting pressure on them is literally when they have eggs on the ground and they're in the tundra. So it's just, uh, they they just get conditioned from that many days of of hunting pressure they know what one wrong move looks like in a decoy spread or uh tire tracks that shouldn't be there or a hide that isn't quite good or your buddy's face that's peeking out of the ground blind i mean they see one little tiny thing wrong and they're out of there they're they know all about it so they are they're veterans of the sport we'll just say that and can be Pretty rewarding some days, but very frustrating other days. Hmm, that's fascinating. So what uh, what's your calling strategy to these birds? Um, tip, you know, in the springtime, we can have e-callers running, 
So that's nice. Then you don't need a calling strategy so much just because you hit the play button and and turn up the speakers and let them go and you don't have to go blue in the face. But, uh, you know, when I have a call, having a call in the fall, that's the only legal way to call them in the fall is, is with a, a goose call of some sort or screaming at them. But, um, uh, I like to pick out one bird that I think is responding to the call. And then I just try to give that bird whatever's worked and whatever continues to work, whether you just bark after he barks or um, some some feeding sounds or whatever kind of like trips his trigger, I just like to stay on that note in hopes that that one bird, you're able to lure him in and then that bird's going to, you know, hopefully attract some others to, to get some others to break down. And uh, so for the most part, I'm just calling out one bird in particular and, and not a whole bunch of them. Okay. Makes sense. So, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about in this podcast yet is, is calling and you, uh, and you have your own calling company, DRC or, or death row calls. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about how you develop that and, and how it's going right now? Uh, yeah. DRC call company started that, uh, roughly, 2007 uh, I was blown in a whole bunch of goose calling contests back then and I just really couldn't find a call on the market that fit my style and couldn't find anything that I really wanted to practice with uh, different calls had sharp edges on them and different calls had weird insert shapes so my hand would slide all over the place when I was trying to practice and trying to blow in a contest and any little change in mouth position uh, call on your lips or finger or hand placement with your call um, in your hand. It's all going to change the back pressure of the call and it's going to throw you way off. So um, I just went out and designed my own. My uncle, Brian Steiger, over by Red Lake Falls, had a CNC lathe that he showed me how to operate. And he gave me the programming manual for it, said if I wanted to make a goose call, I'd have to read that first. So that was kind of my my introduction to programming a CNC machine was just sitting down with this 20-pound instruction manual and and trying to figure out what the heck I was looking at, basically. And I went through, um, learned that best I could drew some designs up on the com- on paper and then transferred them to a computer and then from the computer turned them into a CNC lathe program and then after a whole bunch of prototypes and tweaking the design I came up with our model that we have now which is the life sentence that was our flagship flagship goose call and it has an oversized radius on the mouthpiece, so it's nice and comfortable and easy to practice with. And then it's got a finger groove on the insert, so you know where your hand goes and your hand's not sliding around. And that's carried through with all of our goose calls. They all have those features on them. I've, I've, uh, they're very important to me on day one, and we haven't lost focus of that. So I continue on building calls with at least those two features and then the length of the call and the inside bore dimensions and diameters change depending on which kind of sound I want to get out of the call or which, which bird we're trying to call with it, whether it's a, you know, sandhill crane, we've got a a new sandhill call. Um, and then a very 
variety of honker calls, um, little goose calls like the short drop and some contest style calls like the psycho and then an easy learn and easy blow and call like that life sentence. Mm-hmm. So are, are any of those carried in shields? Uh, yeah. The Grand Forks shields has a big variety of calls um, to start out the year. Usually I don't know what they have in stock right now, but uh, usually get picked over fairly quick as the season rolls rolls around a fairly popular item but uh yeah those guys have all your have all your duck and goose call needs very cool so um what uh what else do you like to do do in your free time you said you talked a little bit about uh your dog uh yeah i've got i have a a male black lab boone and he was kind of the first lab second lab that i had that i or first one that i trained and uh, ran and hunt tests with but uh and since boone we've picked up a bunch of females um couple uh, one yellow lab rue and she's a real dark yellow or like a red lab and uh, she's probably my main hunting dog now and then we've got a few other females as well some some black labs uh bonnie is another one that's around the house and I'm running some hunt tests with her and we've got Tilly and uh, Tilly is co-owned by myself and Tony Crotty with mid migration outfitters. And then I, I co-own a couple other females um, like tiny that uh, I own with Brett Amundsen and Ruby that I own with Max Barda and then um, red that I own with Ian Lund. So I, train a bunch of our own dogs and a bunch of my dogs and run hunt tests with them all all around oh, the midwest in the summertime both the akc hunt tests and the hrc hunt tests um, we enjoy doing that putting titles on the dogs and rue got her master title last summer she just turned three uh, Bonnie is working towards her senior title, and then she'll be working towards her master title after that. And we haven't ran a, any hunt tests with Tilly yet, so she'll be kind of the next up-and-comer. But that's what keeps me busy all summer long when I'm not out in the field chasing birds, um, kind of keeping those dogs tuned up for the fall. Mm-hmm. Very cool. You like to get behind some turkey decoys in the spring too, don't you? Yeah, Turkey hunting's a lot of fun. That's about the only thing that we can hunt during that time of year. Um, and I just love taking kids out, introducing kids to turkey hunting just because the weather's so awesome. And it's just fun to, the snow is melting, the weather's getting a little bit warmer. Um, and those, those dang t- Tom gobblers just put on an awesome show for those kids and uh the kids can hunt in minnesota they can hunt the whole entire season with their tags so um tags are very inexpensive and they have ample opportunity to get out there and hunt the birds so we just like to like to get out and chase them and take a bunch of kids out oh gosh i don't know how many um youth turkey tags or first turkeys we filled we got into shooting them with 410 and uh tungsten last year and that was just a blast so kids had a great time doing that my daughter shot one with a with a 410 last year i think that was probably her sixth or seventh bird and she's only 15 years old so she's she's 
put quite a few of them down and then, uh, um, yeah, a few of the other kids as well, but good times. Yeah, that's, that's really impressive to shoot that many birds only at 15. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I have a daughter too. She's five this year. She already asked me, Hey daddy, when can, can we go all go turkey hunting? So it's, it, I'm super excited about that. And like you said, it's just, it's the perfect time to, to introduce the youth to it. Cause the, it's warming up and, uh, you know, you can really see them Tom's put on a show. Yeah, absolutely. Don't get, don't get hung up on, on filling a tag. That's the advice that I have for anyone looking to drag some kids out into the turkey blind this year. Bring, bring snacks. And when I say bring snacks, like when you think you have enough snacks, double or at least triple that amount of snacks. And then just don't get hung up on, on filling a tag. Just provide a, a fun atmosphere and fun experience for the kids if you see something if you don't see anything whatever as long as you're spending some time with them in the outdoors getting them out showing them nature uh, they might not even care a thing about the turkeys it might be uh, it might be the woodcock migration uh, mating rituals flying overhead or uh, all the owls that you see or the sandhill cranes running around squawking at you and, and the ducks and geese flying around you know whatever there's just so much to see during that time of year uh, it's just a it's really a magical time in the woods and kind of one of my favorite times to to be running around out there yeah absolutely so many unexpected things you can find out there and just you know the only way to really experience that is to get out there and and do it yourself absolutely Mm -hmm. so all right Corey. well thank you so much for your time this has been it's been a very very interesting podcast session i i wasn't expecting to talk about all that you know the fat rendering and and all that stuff so you almost threw me for a loop there but you know i would say it's is a great one Oh, thanks much. I appreciate having me on. So how can, uh, you know, how can people follow you, follow your story, contact you, things like that? Uh, you know, I update my Instagram page a lot. So that's Corey Loeffler on Instagram and then Corey Loeffler or DRC Call Company on Facebook as well. And if you want to check out the website, that is drccalls.com. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and, you know, uh, best of luck in the upcoming seasons. Yeah, you too, Mike. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a good one. You too. You just heard our conversation with Corey Loeffler of DRC Calls, Sitka Ambassador, and all-around steward of the land. It was great to hear a first-hand product review of the new Nodak series of whites from someone who has really put those to a beating. If you're interested in the new Sitka Nodak series of whites, you can find a link to those in the description of this podcast. It's also super refreshing to hear his perspective of harvest from a true utilization and respect standpoint. Corey's out there rendering fat and growing gardens and really remembering what it truly means to be an outdoorsman. If you want to follow along with his adventures, we have his Instagram account linked in the description of this podcast. I can promise you this upcoming snow goose and turkey hunting adventures are going to be worth the follow. If you like what you heard today, make sure to give us a follow on the listening platform you chose today. And with that, we want to thank you for listening and see you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.